This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 35 through 58. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 35 through 58. If you'd like to follow along in the Blue Pew Bibles in front of you, you can turn to page 961. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 35 through 58. Please rise now in honor of God's holy and inerrant word. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. 
You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Father, as the word has now been read, we do pray for the Spirit to come and to give us help, to give us power to understand and to apply and hearts that are willing to submit. Lord, we pray all these things for your glory and our good and in your name. Amen. You know, I'm getting close to middle life. I don't think I uh, have hit a crisis yet, but I am starting to feel the effects of aging. When I hit my 30s, I made a point of having annual checkups, and I always got a clean bill of health. I was in and out very fast. Got something in the mail telling me about the results, and I didn't even read it because it was just pretty much, it had nothing on it. But it was just a few months ago, for the first time, my doctor told me to come back for more tests because she noticed an abnormality in one of my blood tests. And I'll be honest, that was, that was a, quite a shock for me. I never had to even think about that. Now, thank God it turned out to be a false alarm, but it, it was definitely a wake-up call reminding me that I'm not getting any younger. Like everyone else, I'm aging and my body is slowly but surely breaking down. And just the other day in the church office, Roy asked if my shoulder was okay because he noticed I was just rubbing it profusely. And I wish I had a story to tell him about playing basketball or football and tweaking it, but no, I was just sleeping. I did it sleeping. Friends, we have to face the reality that our bodies are aging. Every year, every day, they grow a little older and a little weaker, a little more prone to injury, a little more susceptible to, to sickness. We just can't exercise or play sports with the same intensity that we used to. And if we try, it takes that much longer for our muscles and our joints to recover. Now, I know some of you, due to age or due to a struggle with chronic illness or injury, I know you are keenly aware of this reality. You're like, welcome to the club, man. You feel the pain. You feel the frustration of having to bear these burdensome bodies. But there are many of you here who are young and at the prime of your lives. You assume, as I once did, that every doctor's visit will be quick and uneventful. You assume you can pull off a 10K with little to no training. You assume you have many more years on this earth, and death is the furthest thing on your mind. And so this morning's passage, I believe, is a much-needed wake-up call. In the last few weeks leading up to Easter, we've been studying uh, the 15th chapter of the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians. And it's where Paul explains the significance of Jesus' resurrection. He explains the implications if it's just a nice story and not a historical reality. If Christ has not been raised, verse 17, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ himself is still in the grave, if he only experienced this life and not a new resurrected life, then our hope in Christ is only going to apply to this life. If Christ has not been raised, then death, which is described as the last enemy, has not been defeated. That means, like Christ, we will one day be dead and we will just stay dead. 
If Christ has not been raised, then all who die in Christ have no hope. But if Christ has been raised, then all who die in Christ will one day share in his resurrection. That was last week's point when Henry covered for us verses 12 to 34. The point is, is that because of the first resurrection, the the event that brings us together this morning, because of the resurrection, Christians look forward to a future resurrection of the dead where those who die believing in Christ will rise again to eternal life while the rest of humanity will rise to eternal punishment. That's taught in various places in Scripture, Old and New Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, John chapter 5, verse 28. All of human history, all who have ever and will ever live are heading towards a bodily resurrection and one of two destinations. Now, this idea that's so prominent in Paul's teaching, it confused many people in his day as as much as it does in our day. Look at verse 35 again with me. And notice how it says, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Apparently, some were confused as to how a future resurrection made any sense at all. Because what they were picturing were dead, rotted corpses trying to imagine those corpses coming back to life. And so just as a bad B-movie zombie flick just seems so ridiculous to us, we watch it and we think, "That's that's so silly. Well, in the same way, there were some in the Corinthian church who thought the idea of a bodily resurrection was just flat out silly. Come on, really? What kind of body are they going to come back with? They've been rotted. They're, they're just dry bones now. It's ridiculous. Especially since the Corinthians weren't used to burying their dead, but rather burning them. Because like all Greeks, they practiced cremation. Because they, they viewed the body at best as a shell. At worst, they saw the body as a prison house for the soul. And so they would burn their dead in order to, what they believed, would free them from their bodily shackles. That's why they practiced cremation. Now, even though these early Greek converts to Christianity began to renounce the practice of cremation and to pick up the practice of burial, yet many of them tried to picture their dead friends whose ashes have been scattered to the four winds, and they couldn't imagine how how those individuals could one day rise again in a body. We burned their body. Their ashes are all over the place. How can this be? What they fail to understand and what Paul belabors to explain is that in the future resurrection of the dead, a radical transformation takes place. We rise with our bodies, but they're not the same bodies. They're changed. They're transformed to a greater kind of glory. They're now imperishable. They're immortal. That's Paul's argument in our passage in verses 35 to 58. According to his gospel, the Christian's hope is not to one day shed these burdensome bodies, but to see our bodies changed. So let's dig into that. Let's consider 
what our Christian hope is anticipating. If you want to follow along, look in your bullets and you'll see an outline. And there are three anticipations of the Christian hope that we see here in the text. First, the Christian hope anticipates a bodily future existence. Second, our hope is in new bodies changed and more glorious than before. And third, our Christian hope anticipates a stingless death and resurrection to an imperishable life. So let's look at all three. The first thing our Christian hope anticipates is a bodily future existence. We are looking forward to a final destination that will be a physical place. But for ancient Greeks, that idea did not fit within their worldview, how they perceived all of reality. That's what made the idea of a future bodily resurrection so difficult for some of these Corinthian believers to grasp. As we just explained, Greeks didn't understand your body as being an essential part of who you are because they held to a very dualistic worldview that sharply divided the physical from the spiritual realm. And so anything material, anything that comprised of matter, which would include your body, was considered to be inferior to that which is immaterial, to your spirit, to your soul. And so according to that worldview, you are your soul. You are the immaterial part of you. Your body is just a shell. And so you can understand from that kind of thinking why Greeks would imagine that after death, after shedding off your burdensome body, that you would now enter into an immaterial, ethereal existence in some otherworldly future. And that's why all this talk of a resurrection where we rise with new bodies, material things, doesn't make any sense to them. If you already died, why would you need to be reunited with your body? If you finally got rid of it, why would you want it back again? That's what ancient Greeks would wonder. But you know, I'm not surprised if a lot of modern-day Christians are wondering the same thing. Why do we need this? Why do we need a resurrection? Why do we need a body in the future? If after we die, if we get to be with Jesus in heaven, then what's the point of having a resurrected body? I'm fine without it. You see, those questions only make sense if we have already accepted and adopted that dualistic worldview that sees heaven as some sort of immaterial, otherworldly existence. Now, just to be clear here, by heaven, I'm not talking about where the dead in Christ are right now, but I'm talking about the Christian's future, our final destination when all is said and done. If your picture of that heaven doesn't include mountains and rivers and valleys, if it doesn't include buildings and bridges and all sorts of technology, if you're just imagining clouds and floating castles, then you're not thinking of heaven. You're just thinking of something else. Heaven, according to Scripture, will be an earthly place. In Revelation 21, we are told that heaven, God's dwelling place, will one day come down and be on earth, a newly renewed earth. And so if God were to show you heaven today, 
If he were to show you heaven today, you would recognize it. It's not because he's going to transport you to some otherworldly location that replicates what things look like on earth. No, if he shows you heaven today, you would be looking at earth. Now, it will look different, but only different in the sense that the curse of sin and all of its ruinous effects will have been completely eradicated. It will be new in that sense, but it's still the earth. When all is said and done, God's plan is not to transport his people away and abandon his creation on earth. His plan is to redeem and to renew creation. He won't give up on earth any more than he gives up on us. So if our future destination is to be with God on a newly renewed earth, then that's why we're going to need to have newly renewed bodies. I understand that certain passages, uh, certain verses in our passage could be used to argue the opposite. So for example, if you look at verse 50, if you look there, it says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I know that seems to suggest that the kingdom of heaven won't be a place for physical bodies. But verse 50 is simply talking about our physical bodies as constituted right now. That's what Paul meant by flesh and blood. Your body right now in its present state won't inherit the kingdom of heaven, which is why it needs to be transformed. It needs to be resurrected. When verse 44 says that our natural body will be sown into the dirt, and then raised as a spiritual body, don't focus so much on the word spiritual that you overlook the word body. It's still a body. Like calling the resurrection body spiritual doesn't make it something immaterial or intangible. Bodies, by definition, are material. They are tangible. They're physical. So natural and spiritual, here in verse 44 is just describing for us the moral quality of that physical body that's going to go through a transformation. Paul's point is that only spiritual bodies, that is, bodies that have been fully sanctified, bodies that have been glorified, bodies that have been eradicated of all sin, only that kind of resurrection body is able to dwell on the new earth that is to come. Now, before we go on in our passage I want you to ask yourself if perhaps, without even realizing it, perhaps you've adopted a very Greek-like, dualistic worldview. Have you you always imagined heaven to be a very foreign, otherworldly place? Have you shared a rather low view of the body? Do you see it simply as this extraneous part of yourself that one day you're going to shed off when you get to go to heaven? Now, I realize some of you are facing a daily struggle with the aging and wearing down of your body in ways that I have yet to experience that I can't understand. But I think I am starting to understand why the idea of finally being rid of this burdensome body is appealing But instead of painting a future where we are freed from the restraints of a human body, I'm trying to show you a beautiful biblical vision of a new earth where all who die in Christ will rise again with new 
bodies that will no longer age, no longer get sick, no longer feel pain, and no longer die. That's what I want you to hold on to. That's your Christian hope. That leads to our next point as well. I want to talk now about how our bodies will be transformed in the future resurrection. Let's consider how our Christian hope anticipates new bodies changed and more glorious than before. If you go back with me in verse 35, remember Paul is responding to an objection that a bodily future resurrection makes little sense. But his response is that objectors are mistaken because they're thinking in terms of resuscitation and not resurrection. They're thinking about a resuscitation. They're imagining a rotted corpse being resuscitated back to life. They're not taking into account the radical transformation that takes place in resurrection. Paul uses for us a seed analogy. It's very helpful as an illustration. He says, think about what just happens when a seed is planted. There is both, in this case, continuity and discontinuity between the seed and the eventual plant. So listen to verses 36 to 37. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. And so think in terms of continuity here. If you sow a kernel of wheat, you know that come harvest time, you're not going to get a barley plant. You're not going to get a stalk of corn. You're going to get wheat. There's continuity. Now, in the same way, the human body that dies and goes into the ground will also rise one day as a human body. We're not going to transform into some different kind of being. We remain humans, just as Jesus rose and came back as a human. The post-resurrection accounts of Jesus in Scripture make a point of emphasizing that he still had a body. He's still a human. He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He had a human body that could be touched. It could eat. It could digest food. He remained incarnate. He remained in the flesh. There is continuity between this body and the body to come. But in resurrection, there's also discontinuity. Think back to that kernel of wheat. I mean, we all know that the seed that is planted looks vastly different from the eventual plant. And even though I, I would assume most of us are all city slickers, we grew up in, in an urban setting, and yet I guess we're just no longer impressed by that. It's just too familiar to us. We're not surprised at the wonder of how trees and plants come from just a tiny seed. I mean, just imagine just sticking a little round thing in the dirt and then just walking away, paying it no attention, and then coming back a year later and you go to that same spot to dig up that little round thing you buried and instead you find, standing in its place, an oak tree. Now, how did that happen? How did it go from a little round thing to now this big tree? It should blow our minds considering just how different the acorn is from the oak tree. What rises up looks nothing like what was buried. There is discontinuity. And yet, what rises is not something brand new, 
is it? Revelation 21, verse 5, it says, God is making all things new. Not all new things. He's making all things new. And so in the future resurrection, the new earth will still be the earth, and resurrected bodies will still be bodies. This is Paul's response to those who cannot fathom how we're going to come back from the dead in a body. Even if their corpses, if their corpse has rotted, even if they've been cremated and scattered to all the four winds, how can they rise in bodily form? With what kind of body do they come? Paul says, those are just foolish objections. Now, if we were preaching a future resuscitation of the dead, okay, well then those would be actually fair objections. There would be a problem here, but we're preaching a future resurrection. And so no matter if you were buried in one piece or scattered throughout the land or the sea, if you died, Trusting in Christ Jesus, you will rise again in a new body that has been qualitatively changed as much as an acorn has been changed into an oak tree. Just think back to Jesus' own resurrection. He came back with a human body, but it wasn't the same as before. It was far more glorious than before. And that's the point of verses 38 to 41 in our passage where Paul says, just look at creation and you can tell that God has assigned different kinds of bodies with different degrees of glory. And so our present body will one day give out and like a seed, we're gonna be buried into the ground, but change is a coming. Listen to verses 42 to 43. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. After Jesus was raised in power, his new resurrected body did some peculiar things. It's recorded for us in Luke chapter 24, verse 31, that after revealing his identity to the two disciples that he met on the road to Emmaus, he just suddenly vanished right before them, from their sight. And then in John's gospel, in chapter 20, verse 19, he says on the evening of that first Easter Sunday, the doors, specifically he notes, were locked. And yet Jesus came and he stood among them. And so his resurrection body was a human body, but he wasn't bound by the same limitations as we are today in our present lowly state. And yet, having said that, having pointed that out in Scripture, I don't want to give the impression that the risen Christ just floated around Jerusalem, materializing himself through brick walls, surprising people, teleporting from here and there, because that might give the impression that he's no longer human with an actual human body. But if you think about it, did you notice how all four gospel accounts make a point of emphasizing that the stone in front of his tomb was rolled away. All of them make a point of stressing that. Why make a big deal out of the stone being rolled away when Jesus could have simply materialized himself through the stone, through the, the, the rock walls of the tomb? It's to drive home the point that the resurrection body is a real body that, and that, that physically walked out of that tomb. But it's a changed body. 
far more glorious than before. A resurrected body is very different from a resuscitated body. I mean, just think of Lazarus, right? John 11, dead four days, buried in a tomb, but resuscitated at Jesus' simple command to come out. Now, he came back to life, but Lazarus was not resurrected. He didn't get a new glorified body at that point. He couldn't walk past locked doors. His resuscitated body was still subject to decay. It was still prone to illness and injury. Poor guy, he was going to have to die a second time. Friends, the thing is, is that unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we are all going to die. There's no use denying it. There's no use ignoring it. We are going to die. Every hour, your body wears down just a little more. One day, it's going to give out unless a fatal accident or tragedy strikes you sooner. That's just the reality. But if you place your hope in Jesus, if you believe that he died for your sins and that he is alive today, then even though you will be sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, sown as a natural body, the promise of Scripture is that one day you're going to hear your name personally called and then a simple command to come out. Come out. And like Lazarus, you will be raised. But unlike Lazarus, you will be raised in glory, raised in power, raised as a spiritual resurrected body. And if you're so, if you're so fortunate to be alive when Jesus does return, Paul says in verse 51 that even for those who don't fall asleep in Christ, that's just a euphemism for dying, he says in verse 51, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now, how can we be so sure of this? Well, this leads to our third and final point. The Christian hope anticipates a stingless death and a resurrection to an imperishable life. And what gives a steadfast, immovable confidence, what gives us steadfast, immovable confidence that this is going to be our future, it is simply the victory that Christ has accomplished on the cross over the grave. And that's written for us in verses 54 to 55. Look there with me. 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now Paul here is quoting from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. He's saying that when the future resurrection finally comes, when all the dead will rise, then the taunt of death found here in Hosea 13 will be fulfilled. After the final resurrection, no one will ever die again. It says death will be swallowed up, gobbled up, defeated. It will be the death of death. 
But until that day comes, we will still face death. And yet, friends, please notice with me that there is a way. There is a way to experience a stingless death, a death that won't hurt you, that won't harm you. Look in verse 56. It talks about death's sting. That Greek word refers to a scorpion or bee's sting. Listen to verse 56 again. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And so death itself is not the major problem. It's only death as a punishment for sin that should really scare you because it leads you to a second death, to an eternal death. Friends, if you have yet to deal with the sin in your own life, with your failure to perfectly keep God's law, then death, when it strikes you, it will carry with it a deadly sting. In that case, if you have not dealt with your sin, you should fear death because you too will one day be raised but to a resurrection of judgment unto eternal damnation. But friends, the good news of the gospel The good news of the gospel centers on what Christ has done for you freely by his grace. He has both fulfilled the law on our behalf and he has removed the sting of death. You have to put your faith, though, in Jesus. You have to trust in him. And if you do, if you become a Christian, you will still die one day, but death, death will be transformed from a punishment to a pathway. It will be transformed from a punishment for your sin to now a pathway to resurrection life. For the Christian, death is now gain. And it's all because of what Christ did on the cross for us. He let death sting him. He bore the sting of death for us. And just like how a bee that has used its stinger, will die shortly after. Death stung Jesus on the cross, but in so doing, it sealed its own fate. Death, like a bee without a stinger, is still buzzing around, hasn't died yet, but it's harmless. It's harmless for the Christian. Christian, you don't need to fear death anymore. It has lost its victory. It has been swallowed up in Christ's victory, in his death and resurrection. One day, death will be no more. Christ's resurrection assures us us of this. Listen to verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know, I know that struggling with your burdensome body can really shake your faith. Perhaps you're not experiencing the healing or the recovery that you have been hoping for, that you have been praying for. Perhaps it's not getting better Maybe it's getting worse. Your body is wearing down. Or perhaps you're seeing this happen to a friend, to a family member. Some of you are responsible for taking care of elderly parents or a sick spouse. 
or children with special needs. And your faith has been tried and tested. But please just remember this. If you're in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. That's what Paul wants to leave us with in verse 58. If you are safe in our risen Lord, if you share in his death, then you too will share in his resurrection. And if it's a loved one that you are particularly concerned for, then just keep praying and keep keep caring for their health, their physical health, but please prioritize their spiritual relationship with the Lord. Because if they are safe in the Lord, then their labor and your labor will ultimately not be in vain. Though their body may give way, their hope will stay. That in Christ, they will rise to new imperishable life. Father, fill us and strengthen us with that hope. Remind us if we have forgotten or simply taken for granted the power and the implication of your death and resurrection through your son, Jesus. Help us to live this out. Help us to encourage one another as we face the wearing down of our bodies, but also the hope of newness of life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting?